Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is, as you know, to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're in season three, and we're in chapter 10 of Matthew on our journey together every day through the Word of God. I do hope you're finding it helpful. If by any chance you've just arrived here for the first time today, then why not consider clicking on that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts from, and that way you'll not miss another single episode. Please hang on at the end where I'll tell you some ways that you're able to connect this ministry and other free teaching resources that I make available. But with that said, let's do as we always do and let's launch off in today's study. Okay friends, we're picking up in a new chapter today, Matthew chapter 10, and let me begin by just setting the scene and reading for you the first four verses, which tells us this. And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits, to cast them out, and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother. James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Lebius, whose name was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who would also betray him. Now, we're ten chapters into the Gospel account, and Matthew has been unfolding his story, his account of Jesus before us step by step. Following the introduction and his Advent story, Matthew tells us about the baptism of Jesus. And in that account, Matthew shows us Jesus accepting the task that God has commissioned him to do. Then in the account of the temptations, Matthew shows us Jesus deciding on the methods he will use to embark upon his task that God has given him. And in the Sermon of the Mount, we listen at length to the words of Jesus, to his wisdom and extensive teaching on how we as individuals might be made right with God. Then in Matthew chapter 8, in the opening part of chapter 9, we have recently seen Jesus' miraculous works of power. And then in the close of chapter 9, we see the growing opposition beginning to gather against him and his ministry. And now here at the beginning of chapter 10, we shall see Jesus choosing his disciples, his apostles. If any leader is about to embark on a great undertaking, the first thing they have to do is choose their followers. On them, in a sense, the present and maybe the future success of the work, the mission will depend. Now, particularly when we, from our standpoint, from this point of time, we know that Jesus will not be physically on earth with these people always. So that takes on even more a particular poignancy and relevance. But here, Jesus is choosing his helpers in the days of his incarnation, those who would carry out his work on earth and when he would leave the earth and return to glory with his Father. And there are two facts, I would say, about these people, these men who were chosen, that should really strike us immediately. First is that they were just ordinary people. They had no wealth. They had no academic background. They had no social position. 
They were chosen from among very ordinary people. These twelve, these men, none of them had any special education and none of them had any real social privileges or advantages. It's often been said that Jesus is looking not so much for extraordinary people, but he's looking for ordinary people through which he can do extraordinary things. Jesus chose these particular men, not because of who they were or weren't, but because of what they were capable of becoming under his influence and his power. No one need ever think they have nothing to offer the Lord or the work of God, because Jesus can take whatever limited abilities, anything that we're prepared to offer to him, and he can do great things with it. So first, they were ordinary people, but secondly, they were an extraordinary mixture of people. There was, for instance, at one end of the scale, Matthew, the text collector. Everyone would have regarded Matthew at that time as a traitor, someone who had sold themselves into the hands of the country's occupying force, literally dealing with the country's enemies for financial gain. However, alongside Matthew, we see he chooses someone called Simon, and Luke calls him Simon Zelotes, which means Simon the Zealot. Now, a Roman historian called Josephus described these zealots at great length in his book called Antiquities, and he referred to them as the fourth party of the Jews. The other three main parties were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. But here he says this fourth group, the zealots, and to quote him, they said they had a complete attachment to maintaining personal freedom. And they said that God is to be their only ruler and Lord. They were prepared to save death for their nation and for their beliefs. They were prepared to see their comrades or even their family members and loved ones die in their struggle for independence and freedom. They refused to recognise any earthly man as king. And they were also prepared to go to the length of committing murder or assassination to seek rid from their country of these foreign rulers. They were the ultra-patriots of the first century, the most nationalist of all the Jewish nationalists. And the plain fact is that this Simon the Zealot has been joined into a group with someone like Matthew, the Roman tax collector. That's amazing. Anywhere else than in the company of Jesus, Simon the Zealot would probably have wanted to stuck a knife in Matthew. But the amazing truth is that people who hate each other can often learn to love and accept each other when they have both decided to love and to follow Jesus. We may also ask why Jesus chose 12 special disciples. The reason is very likely because, of course, there were 12 tribes of Israel. So just as in the Old Testament dispensation, where there have been 12 tribes of Israel, so in the New Testament here, there are 12 apostles of what will be, in a sense, the new Israel. The New Testament itself doesn't tell us an awful lot about these men, other than some of them their occupation. But that is probably because the New Testament is more concerned with about telling us about their master, Jesus, and his work, rather than the workers being glorified. These men, ordinary people with no special background, people from many different spheres of thinking and background, are going to be the very foundation stones on which the church is built. Then, as today, it is on the labours of ordinary men and women that the Church of Christ is built upon. And we see that happening first here in these Gospel accounts and later in the Book of Acts and, of course, down throughout the history of the Church. 
when we put together the three accounts of the calling of the twelve from across the three gospel accounts, certain illuminating facts really do emerge about them and their role. Firstly, we need to recognise that he chose them. Jesus called his disciples. He chose them probably from out of a larger crowd of followers. If you read Luke's account of these events, it's very clear that's what happens. It seems that Jesus looked upon the crowds who were starting to follow him and he chose from within them a smaller brand and some have suggested that he perhaps chose those who had stayed with him and around him when the greater crowds had departed. Now there are many tasks for people who are called to follow Christ to do in the kingdom of God. There are tasks for those who are young and fit and can go out into the world and there are tasks for those who may be at the point in life where they need to stay at home. There are tasks for those who can use their hands practically and there are tasks for those who are primarily called to use their intellect and their mind. There are even tasks to be done that no one will ever know about or even acknowledge. But the important point is to recognise is that Jesus chose us and therefore he chose us to use whatever abilities, limited abilities even, that we have. But as well as choosing us, he calls us, just like he called them. Jesus does not force anyone to do his will or his work. He doesn't manipulate, he invites. Jesus does not call an army of conscripts, he is seeking volunteers. You know, every single human being on this planet, even today, is free, completely free, free will to be faithful or to be faithless. But to every individual, there comes the call to follow, which everyone can accept or refuse. So as well as choosing them and calling them, it tells us he appoints them. Now, the King James Version uses the word that he ordained them. Mark's account 3.14 in most translations uses that word. The word translated ordain is a very simple straightforward Greek word poien, which means to appoint or to make. But it was often technically used for appointing a person to some high office. So Jesus in a sense is seen to be like a king appointing his followers to be his ministers or as some might say, he's like a general, allocating tasks, those he has command over. It was never the case that people are called just to drift into the service of Jesus Christ. It was then and today a case of definitely being called and being appointed in a sense to a role. Now people in the world are often proud when they're appointed to some earthly position, but how much more can we be satisfied when we know that we are called and appointed by the King of Kings the Lord of the universe. But we are also chosen for a reason, and one of the reasons is to be with him. If we are to do God's work in the world, then we must live in his presence, and he invites us to accept his presence living within us before we head out into the world. So before we do that, there must be the presence of God within us that we can take out and show and give and allow people to experience that presence, no work of Christ, no work truly of the kingdom of God, this teaches, can ever be done except by someone who brings with them the presence of Christ. 
Now, sometimes in the complexity of our modern lives and the activities of the modern church, we are so busy with committees and administrations just trying to make the wheels continue to turn that we're often in danger of forgetting that the only thing we really need is the presence of God. Now, it tells us that we are called to be apostles, and that word is used specifically on a few occasions in this text and in the other gospel accounts. Now, the word apostle literally means one who is sent out. It is the word for an envoy or an ambassador, which tells me that the Christian is Jesus Christ's ambassador to other people. He or she goes out with the presence of Christ, bearing with them the word and the very presence of the master himself. And it also tells us that we are called to be heralds of Christ. Now, in Matthew 10, they are told to go out and preach. And that word can also be translated as herald. So the Christian is not meant to go out there and bring people to his own opinions. His point is to preach and to bring a message of divine truth from God himself. He cannot bring the message, of course, unless he first has the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, living within him and revealing that message through him. So let's just consider, I'm going to read to you from verses 5 through to the first part of verse 8, and let's just look at this commissioning of his disciples. So it tells us, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Now it begins here by Jesus commissioning of his disciples that saying he's commanding. In other words, he's giving them orders, it actually says in some translations. Now this word used here has several special usages, and I believe they all apply. The word translated command or order is a regular word used by military commanders in that time. So what that tells me is Jesus is therefore, in a sense, like a general sending his commanders out on a campaign and briefing them before they go. But it is also a word used of calling one's friends to come and help you. So Jesus here is, I believe, revealed to be like a friend, someone who has a great vision and they summon those closest to him, their friends, to help him make that vision come true. But it was also a word used of teachers setting out rules and precepts to his students, something that would have been very familiar to followers of rabbis and Greek philosophers at that time. So Jesus here is being portrayed as one who is like a teacher who is, in a sense, qualifying his students to go out into the world, saying you're equipped and you're ready to practice. You're ready to practice what you've been taught. But it was also a word which was regularly used for the imperial command. Therefore Jesus is also seen to be like a king dispatching his ambassadors. There's that word again. His apostles into the world to carry out his commission and to speak for him and on his behalf. But you probably can't fail to have noticed that this passage also includes a very difficult verse that many people struggle with because it begins by him forbidding the twelve to go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. There are many people who find it difficult even to believe that Jesus ever said that because this apparent exclusiveness is so unlike him and everything he sells everywhere else and all on all the other gospel accounts. 
Now, it, it is true that this verse has been abused by people throughout history, some who wanted to keep the gospel from the Jews and some who wanted to keep the gospel exclusively to the Jews, both extremes. But there are certain things we need to understand and remember here when approaching it. There's no question he said it, so we have to look at it and we must dig deep to find the explanation of why he said it and what it means. Most Orthodox Bible experts are certain that this phrase, though accurate, is not a permanent command. In fact, just think about it. Within the Gospel accounts itself, we see and will see Jesus again talking graciously to people who aren't of the house of Israel. The time he meets a woman of Samaria at a well and reveals himself as the Messiah to her. We see him also healing the daughter of a Syrophoenician woman later, in fact, in this Matthew account, which we'll hear about and study when we get to Matthew chapter 15. And of course, Matthew tells us in the final chapter of this book, in what is often referred to as the Great Commission, he tells his followers to go out into all the world and to bring all nations into the gospel promise. So that's very clear that this is clearly a temporary uh, command so then what is the explanation and why did he do that even temporarily the 12 it seems were forbidden to go to the gentiles now what that meant is they couldn't go north into syria and they couldn't go east into decapolis the 10 states which were largely very largely gentile regions at that time They already could not go south into Samaria, for that was forbidden already, both politically and religiously. So the effect of this order was in fact to limit the initial journeys of the Twelve to the Galilee and Israel regions. And there were very good reasons for that. Firstly, we know that the Jews held a very special place in the plan of God, and they were to be the first to be offered the gospel. Now it is true that in the main at that time they rejected it but the whole of history has been designed by God to give them further opportunities to accept. But secondly and very importantly these 12 men were not at that point equipped to preach to the Gentiles. They had neither the background nor the knowledge as to how they could reach into Roman and Greek cultures. Before the gospel could effectively be brought to the Gentiles and the Romans, a man who had an appropriate background needed to emerge. And such a man was Paul, whose life and expertise meant that he had a much greater opportunity for success and a responsibility to do that. Even today, if we as messengers are ill-equipped to deliver the message, or even if we've got a certain amount of wisdom and common sense, we should realise our limitations. We should clearly see that in some areas we are not equipped to do what God might in the fuller extent want to do or might need to use other people to do. But maybe the greatest reason for this command is simply that Jesus, like any wise leader, he must direct his efforts at the right place. If he had diffused this small group of 12 people too thinly, he would dissipate their strength The fact that he sent them out in pairs is important because he wanted for them to be able to encourage each other. To do it any other ways would dissipate their effectiveness, invite discouragement and failure. Jesus knew that his aim should be at first to concentrate his evangelism initially on Galilee. For Galilee, as we have seen, was the most open part of all Palestine to receiving this new gospel message. So this command given here in verse 6 that they should not go out to the Gentiles is in fact 
clearly a temporary command. He, Jesus, is the wide leader who refuses to diffuse and disencourage his followers. He skillfully concentrates his disciples' efforts based on their abilities on the one simple objective initially in order to achieve an ultimate and universal victory as the gospel is spread through people throughout first the region, then to Rome, and then the world. Okay, let's uh, close off today's section by considering what this commission of the disciples, including the need to obey the will of God. Of all the persons who have ever lived, Jesus was clearly the only one who ever perfectly obeyed and fulfilled God's will. But the task of the twelve was not just confined to speaking words, it would involve them doing things. They had to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cast out demons, it tells us there. Now all these injunctions in these verses, they can be taken in two ways. They have a double sense to them. They are to be taken physically, because Jesus does indeed come to bring health and healing to the bodies of men and women, but they are also to be taken spiritually. Some might say it's more important that they are taken spiritually, because they describe the change that can be brought about by Jesus in the hearts and souls of people if they're exposed to him and his power and his Holy Spirit. So firstly, the command is to heal the sick. Now the word used for sick is actually quite interesting because its primary meaning means to be weak. So what this tells us, when Jesus comes into the heart of someone, he can strengthen their weaknesses and he can protect them from future attack, physically and spiritually. Jesus can strengthen us for the fight ahead, for the life ahead, and Jesus can fill our human weakness and gift us his divine power. But secondly, they're also told to raise the dead. A person can, of course, be dead physically, and we've seen Jesus do that, but a person can be dead in sin, and their will to resist sin can be completely broken, and their vision of the difference between good and evil can be blurred to the point where the line for them doesn't exist anymore. Someone may be helplessly and hopelessly in the grip of sin and blind and deaf to the goodness of God dead to the call of God in their lives. However, when Jesus Christ comes and is introduced into their lives, he can resurrect in them his goodness through the power of his spirit. In fact, he revitalizes, brings back to life goodness within them, the goodness which the sinning has oppressed and ultimately even killed. Then thirdly, they are told in these verses to go out and cleanse the lepers. Now as we've seen people with leprosy were actually regarded as polluted at that time, spiritually polluted. So this means as well as healing the sick, his disciples are to bring cleansing to the outcasts and the disenfranchised. Someone can by their own actions completely stain their life with sin and they can pollute their heart, mind and body with the consequences of their sin. Their words and actions and their influence can become so fouled and polluted that they become an unclean influence to all, to everyone whom they come into contact with. Yet Jesus can cleanse the soul of any individual, no matter how much they have corrupted themselves with sin. And then finally, he commissions them to cast out demons. Now, a demon-possessed person is an individual that represents the high point of an individual who's in the grip of an evil power. 
In other words, they've got to a point where they are no longer master of their own actions. The evil power within them has control over them. Now, anyone can be mastered by evil. Anyone can be dominated by evil. And evil has a potential to take a firm hold of any of us. Yet, when Jesus comes and comes to us, he comes not only to cancel sin, but to break the power of that cancel sin and to break the power of any hold that this type of evil may have over us today and in the future. Jesus can bring to anyone, anyone even who's a slave to addiction or sin, the liberating power of God. And the disciples then, as we are called today, no, as we are commissioned today, we are to take that saving, healing power out into the world. And that's something that this passage tells us we are not only called to do and commissioned to do, but we are equipped to do by his Holy Spirit. Okay, folks, I hope you found that helpful and you learned something from it. As I said at the beginning, there's plenty of ways you can connect to not only this, the Bible Project Daily Podcast, but some other teaching I do. The podcast appears Monday to Friday, five days a week, on the host website, which is thebibleproject.buzzsprout.com. But of course, it's also available any and all the major podcast platforms, wherever you're getting it from. You can subscribe there. And you should also be able to access links through to places like Facebook, YouTube, other places, uh, Patreon, LinkedIn, where I put other teaching materials. If you're not seeing active links there on your normal podcast provider, then just go to thebibleproject.buzzsprout.com and you'll definitely find active links there. As well as that, there's a weekly compilation episode put on the sister podcast, which is a once a week or once a fortnight podcast where I bundle and edit these into larger long format teaching and that's on the Living in Faith Everyday podcast and that's also on buzzsprout.com so if you've maybe been away for a week or two and want to listen to it all in a compilation episode maybe that's a good way to play catch up but having said all that thank you so much for joining me today if you do subscribe it means you'll never miss another single episode and if you are enjoying or benefiting from this teaching, then please, I ask you would consider sharing it on your social media accounts so that other people may have the opportunity to have the benefit of the study of the Word of God, not just the reading of the Word of God, the study of the Word of God as part of the rhythm of their daily lives also. So with that all said, I'll say bye-bye for now, and I'll see you right back here tomorrow. Well, tomorrow it is for me whatever day it happens to be for you when you get your latest notification that there's another episode of the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.